If you want to, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Uh, we are finishing chapter 1 this morning, Lord willing, now that I have this extra hour. Um, I remember as a kid, I think I was in fifth grade, uh, we had moved the summer before, so I was in a new school, and um, as the school year went on, there was a, a portion in our English grammar reading section of uh, classroom time where we had time for free reading, and what that meant was um, the, the teacher had a bunch of like legal size boxes. I still vividly remember this, but they were like those legal boxes in part of the room that was full of these like white cards. Um, they, it was on cardstock. They were pretty big, but they were folded in half, and so there was like four pages, and, and they were uh, short stories or essays on uh, certain historical events or uh, bio- biographical information about someone. And the teacher was trying to teach us to read with discernment. So we were to grab these cards and, and take time to read through the information, asking the diagnostic questions that we have all learned to ask when reading, right? The five W's. Who, what, where, why, when, right? When you read something, you're, you're asking those questions to gain information. Uh, and every week we had to submit a summary of our understanding of what we read from the box. It was the worst. <laughs> I hated it. Um, and it's interesting because like up until I came to know Jesus, I was not a reader. Like, I I really didn't like it. I didn't care for it. And I especially didn't like having to read something and then write about what I read. Um, Sometimes I didn't like it because I didn't read the summaries. So, life tip for the students out there. It's hard to do homework if you haven't done the work. Um, But... The key to the assignment was asking those questions. If you haven't noticed, that's what we've been doing here in 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been asking the diagnostic questions. Questions like, who are we? So, I'm going to test you. Because if you've been with us even for a couple weeks, you should know or should be able to clue into the answers to these questions. According to verse one, who are we? Aliens. Aliens, Thank you. So not flying saucer aliens, but aliens that do not belong. This is not our home. We are headed on a different path to a different place. This is not where we find our home. What are we to do? Verse 15. What's that? Be Be holy. Okay, so who we are, we're aliens. What are we to do? We're to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Okay, one more diagnostic question. Verse 17, why? Why are we to be holy? Okay, because he's holy, but what is he going to do according to verse 17? He's going to judge us. We're going to have to give an account. We're going to have to stand before a holy God, and he's going to ask us, what did you do with the life that I gave you? And we talked about this, that even as Christians who have been purchased through the blood of Christ, and we think, well, judgment is no longer ours. No, 
in all actuality, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So who are we? We're aliens. What are we to do? We're to be holy. Why are we to be holy? Because we will stand before God in judgment. Now, this morning, I want to add another diagnostic question. And it's not a W kind of question, but it's the question, how? Okay? So how are we able to do all these things? How then shall we live is the question that Peter answers. How are we able to live holy lives? And it's very simple. Love. Love. I uh, titled my sermon, Love, Love, Love. Love. It's all about love. All we need is love. Right? I can start singing all sorts of kind of songs. (laughs) For some of you this morning, you hear that and you're already bristling. You know, maybe those of the more manly persuasion, right? You don't like to talk about feelings and emotions. Well, we're not talking about that. That's not what love is. That's not biblical love from the text of Scripture and the love that God calls us to. It's not the kind of love, and I know it's that time of year of sappy Hallmark movies. That's not that kind of love. And that that can be a hard thing for us to figure out. Because we know that God is calling us to love, and yet we either have a misshapen view of what true love is, because this world says that love is all about getting out of it you know, what we can get out of it. But a biblical love really turns that understanding on its head and says, true biblical love is what you give, not what you get. And so it can be hard for us to figure out, okay, what does this mean for us? If the how is to love and we don't have a right picture of what love is, then we're going to be lost in our ability to live the pleasing lives that God wants us to have. Now, Peter simply states that because we are God's children called to holiness and will give an account to him for our lives, we must love with a sincere love for one another that comes from the heart. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, this. Since, and that's a connecting word, right? It connects with the previous thought. This is not a brand new idea. Because we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our lives. Since that is true, and since we are called to live holy lives because God is holy, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, Peter makes clear that obedience to the gospel changes our disposition. So when he writes, since you have in obedience to the truth, he's referring to that watershed moment, that life-changing time when we came to understand not just the facts of the gospel, but came to understand as the Holy Spirit regenerated our hearts that we have received all that we need through Jesus Christ, that our lives have been made new, that we are new creations with a new heart. 
that since that has taken place, everything else that Peter says is possible. Obedience to the truth of the gospel has called us to belong to a new family. And so we're aliens in it together. Like, we're not strangers from one another. We're strangers with the world. But together, we are God's family, fit together in a choice and precious way. But there's also a a sense that the truth that we believe is also a reference to the written word of God. So it's not just the understanding of the gospel, but it's also our understanding of the truth of God's word. And I believe that this sense of truth is what Peter is drawing his audience to. Why? Because he just exhorted us to live holy lives because God is holy. And so if if I'm a person that's trying to figure out how to live a holy life, where should I go? How should I figure it out? What should I do? Well, I can't figure it out on my own. I can't look around and compare and think, well, that's a good way to do it. Or that's what I should start putting into my life. No, the best way that I know how to live a holy life is to know the God of Scripture. And to know what He has said. And to know how He's revealed Himself. To see His character. But I'm not going to know who He is if I don't know His Word. So Peter says, obedience to the truth purifies our souls. The word purify here refers to cleansing. Believing in the gospel changes our nature from sinful to righteous. The new nature now allows us through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience. And as we walk in obedience to the truth, what certainly happens? We walk in righteousness and we are not walking in unrighteousness. Do you see the logic of what Peter is saying? The more that we are connected to the truth, the more that we are in the truth, the more that we walk in righteousness, the more that we walk in righteousness, the less that we are filling our lives with choices and decisions and actions that say that we are an unrighteous people living sinful lives. But no, the the truth keeps us on the path. It makes us aware of what God wants us to do. And when we do that, what happens in us, it purifies our souls. We're regenerated more and more. Listen, the more you read the word of God and apply it, the more sin flees from your life. When sin flees from your life, then you are being purified in your soul. Now, the soul is the essence of who we are, the immaterial spiritual part of us that lives forever. You know, the the body Right. That's what we associate most because that's what we see. Right. When we see someone, we say, oh, I know who that is because you see the external part of them and say, yep, that's who they are. But that's going to fade away. That's not going to last forever. The immaterial part. The invisible part. Is the forever part. That's the part that goes to be with the Lord. It's the essence of who we are. It's our our personality and emotions and just us, right? What makes us us? That is what is purified as we follow God and his word. Now the progression continues and it's, it's really quite amazing. The more you read the word, the less you sin. 
the more you read the word, the more you are able to understand the precious calling that it is to be a child of God and follow the example of our Savior. The more you read the word of God, not only do you sin less, but you grow more in your understanding of who God wants you to be. Who does God want us to be like? Jesus, his son. When you're in the word of God and you open the word of God and read the word of God in the gospel accounts, you have the life and ministry of Jesus. You have all of these examples of how he lived. And then the the writers of the New Testament, his disciples who were apostles, looked at his life. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they then built a life of doctrine based on the life and practice of Jesus. And they wrote about him and said, okay, now this is how you're to live as a follower of Jesus. And one of the most beautiful pictures of it is found in Philippians 2. Now, you can read the the example of Jesus in Philippians 2 that begins in verse 5 and runs through verse 10. And it's basically this, that Jesus, who is God, did not think of himself as God, but he humbled himself and took on the form of man and came to the earth. He's fully God and fully man, and he humbled himself. He left heaven to live with us. God dwelled with sinful men. And he not only did that, but he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what does Paul say about that example? Well, he says this in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know what is really hard to do as a human? Verse 3, regard others as more important than yourself. Supremely hard. We are really good at loving ourselves. We are really good at it. And the gospel calls us to a new way. The gospel says, love others and condescend yourself to them. Just like Jesus, who left heaven to come to the earth, We, too, are to lower ourselves in a posture of love for the sake of humility and serving one another, putting others' interests ahead of our own interests. Right? If you're married, you know how hard that can be sometimes. And it's not because the person that you're married to doesn't love you or isn't committed to you. I've been reminded many times in my marriage that I am the problem in our marriage. (laughs) And it didn't come from her. It came from me. And why do I say that? Because when I don't humble myself, 
And I'm not in a posture of humility and service. There's chaos. Not just with my spouse, but with my kids. Just in my life, right? If I make life all about me, if you make life all about you, you turn everyone else into a consumer. Like you're just consuming them for what you want. Paul says, follow the example of Christ, humble yourself, serve them. And then Peter builds on that. And he says, since you have purified your hearts, show a sincere love for one another. Love from the heart. This is a huge, game-changing thought. It really is. And it takes a supernatural work on behalf of God in our lives to turn us from selfishness to selflessness. Only God can do that. We might be able to muster up enough strength in ourselves to be selfless for a moment. But to live a life of selflessness, that can only come from God. And that can only come through the, the power of the Holy Spirit working in us as our eyes are kept on Christ, who is the perfect example for us of what it means to be a selfless person. And so what does Peter say? Well, purified lives that have a sincere love of the brethren fervently love each other from the heart. Love, love, love. Even in Philippians 2, right? What's the theme? Love. The last part of this verse is interesting. Love is mentioned twice, but each time the word love is used, it's a different Greek word. It's not the same one. The first love that is mentioned here in verse 22 is the Greek word, no joke, Philadelphian. Kind of like these guys. And for some of you, it's too soon to see that, right? You're still in weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Sincere love is the idea of sincere brotherly affection. Philadelphian speaks to the kind of love that people show each other at a family acquaintance level. Brotherly love, right? The city of brotherly love. And I just love, I like, okay, love is a bad word to explain. I chuckle at the fact that Philadelphia is referred to the city of brotherly love because every time there's a sporting event going on, there's not a whole lot of love shared uh, at those events. Uh, they, were, they were the crew that threw snowballs at Santa Claus, right? Like a long time ago, but yeah, not a lot of love going on there. Peter calls us to a sincere love, but we also know what an insincere love looks like. A kind of masquerade of love that acts on behalf of the person who is showing it, but often just for themselves. This disingenuous, this fake kind of love is the kind of love that permeates our culture. This is the world that we grow up in. This is the toxic understanding of love that we are consumers and and love really is what can I get out of a person? That's how we define it in our world. 
And when we get what we want out of a person, we like them. And when we cannot get what we want out of a person, we toss them aside. But that's not the kind of love that God is calling us to for each other in the church. When we're talking about brotherly love, we're talking about family love. And when we're talking about family love, we're talking about people that are precious to God, bought with the precious price of Jesus Christ. Not so for those who are part of God's family, not to be like the world. Now, we are capable of showing sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Love for each other should be fervent, as Peter says. Now, this word means eager. Eager love. Now, what does that mean? Well, eager people look for opportunities, right? Eager beaver, right? They're looking for an opportunity. People that love fervently who have been transformed by the grace of God through the power of the gospel, those who are living holy lives that want to please God, knowing that they will stand before him in judgment, are people that are actively looking for ways to show love to others. Right? This is not just heady theological kind of things where we can debate you know, the meaning of certain theolo- theological concepts and sit in our ivory towers and say, I'm just going to read the book. Now, people that are being transformed by the grace of God who have been shown a love that cannot be taken or faded or anything are the people that show it to others. We should be eager, zealous, fervent to love. And again, it should be from the heart. It should be real. The opposite of insincere. This love word that Peter uses here is different than Philadelphian. It's the Greek word agapao or agape and this love is more intense than brotherly love so you have brotherly love like family love here that is philadelphian and then peter says you know what i'm i'm going to show you based on that this is where you should be and it's this intense sacrificial selfless love the same kind of love that is used to describe what jesus did on the cross for us That's the kind of love that we are to have for each other. What does that mean? Well, sacrificial love costs something from you. It costs you to give it. Not just financially. But it's going to cost your time, your gifts, your talents, your effort, your energy. The way you prioritize how you live your life. It's going to change where you were headed And what you thought you were doing in a day. Because God is putting people in front of you that you were called to love. Now, the text says we are to love from the heart. Your Bible might have a little footnote around the word heart in verse 20. The second love in verse 22. And it might be like a little margin where you go to the margin. It says something else. And it's not really something else, it's an explainer, but um, most of the footnotes say that the second love in the earliest manuscripts says that you are to love from a pure or clean heart. Do any of your versions have that? 
And, and the translation may even just, I think the NIV translates it from a pure heart or a clean heart. And it's the sense that inward purification leads to outward deep love, right? As we read the word of God and God purifies our souls, he purifies our hearts so that we can love the way that God wants us to love. And, and love then really isn't this external pursuit, but it, it flows from inside of us. And we are able to love fervently from a pure or clean heart. A pure, clean heart is a heart that doesn't have any motives in loving, right? You all know what it's like for someone to show kindness to you just because they want to get something out of you. Right? And let's just be honest. There have been times in our lives when we have shown kindness to people only to get something from them. Maybe not in that moment, but we keep score, right? And we think, hey, when the time comes, I might just subtly remind them of what I did for them. No, that never happens, right? We're immune to that. But we need to have a pure, sincere heart. The sense is that inward purification leads to outward deep love. Once you have begun to grow in holiness, once you have maturing or are maturing in your faith, you will develop a genuine affection for one another. And your love for each other will be earnest, deep, and strong. So before we look at the remaining verses, uh, let me just offer some simple ways that you can show sincere love to one another. So, right, we're to love one another. Who is he referring to? People that belong to Jesus. The church. Can I just offer some simple ways that you can show love to each other that is sincere from the heart that is causing you to grow? These are not amazingly brand new ideas. You're not going to sit there and go, oh, never thought of that. But maybe it's just the general reminder that these are ways that you can show love because in each of these ways, it's going to cost you something. First, love by listening. You know, the simple act of listening to people is a way to communicate that you love them and care about them. Because a lot of conversations around just with people are more just transactional things. How was the day? What did the Phillies do? What are you doing next week? Transactional information. But if you take time to actually sit down and listen to someone, what's going on in their life, in their heart, What you're communicating is that you're willing to just be a person that is open to hearing what is happening, good, bad, and everything in between in someone's life. There is not a lot of listening going on in the world today. There's a lot of talking. There's a lot of chatter. There's a lot of noise, but there's not a lot of listening. Listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Take the hint. Seriously, those some are coming here this morning fe feeling super lonely this week. And you come to church and this is like 
the one big opportunity that you have to be with people that you know, think like you, live like you, love like you do. And that can be hard. To be able to listen genuinely communicates that you care about the person. James says in James 1.19, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So, be quick to listen. And not just for facts on a test. Listen to not only the information, but listen to how the heart is communicating. Love by listening. Second, love by being generous. Generosity isn't just financial. Though it can be. Being generous means that you give of yourself on behalf of another. It's going to cost you something. Love is sacrificial. It's selfless. And we know that Jesus is the ultimate example of generosity. We know John 3.16, right? Sure we do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is generous. Right? Oh, come on. You got an extra hour of sleep. Okay, good. God is certainly generous. He is overwhelmingly generous. He has a lot to give. So love by being generous. Thirdly, love by encouraging. Sometimes it takes just a simple word of kindness to change a situation. If you're looking for ways to encourage someone, read the book of Proverbs. Just find yourself in Proverbs for a while. Just listen to how Solomon shares wisdom on the power of the tongue and the wonderful results that exist when a person uses their mouths for good. It's full of practical wisdom on the power of the tongue because it's in the tongue that the power of life and death exists. So encourage people. Not just that fake kind of like, please, at the end of the service, don't come up to me and say, yeah, boy, and smack me on the shoulder and say, way to go. And, you know, like we're just cheerleaders following people around. That's not true biblical encouragement. True biblical encouragement gets into the mess with in the foxhole of people's lives and says, I'm just going to sit here with you and I'm going to keep pointing you to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to keep reminding you of who you are, not just as an alien, but as a blood bought child of God. Someone that encourages is the person that even says hard things when they need to be said, but does it in love because their desire is God's best in the person's life. Encourage with the way that you show love. Finally, love prays. Love by praying for each other. Love simply asks, how can I pray for you? And follows through with it. Right? How many times do we say, you know, I'll pray for you. Oh, that's so terrible. I'll pray for you. And we, and we forget to pray. Like we think it's like the spiritual platitude to say, you know, I'll pray for you. Ah, oh, tough one. How about this? And I, I started doing this. I can't remember how many years ago, um, but it's really been a, a big change in my life. When you say that you're going to pray for someone, let's say like after, after church this morning, before Sunday school starts, you're talking to someone, they're sharing their needs, you're listening, you're like, okay, Jack, I'm listening, okay, I want to show love to this person. 
And then you say, can I pray for you? And they say, yeah, absolutely. Try this. Pray for them right then. Right in that moment. And you might think, pastor, I don't know. What words will I say? Well, you're just talking to God. You're talking to your father that loves you and loves them. Just share your heart to God on their behalf. Pray for people. Be honest and follow through in praying for them. And you know, a big part of that is following up and asking, how's God working? What is God doing? But take the time to pray. Listen, it's not hard to love. It Really, it's not. But it will demand more of your time than you are used to. To love the way God wants us to with sincerity and from the heart will cause us to change the way that we live. But it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Relationships are stronger. Faith is encouraged. God is honored. Continue to grow deeper in your understanding of love by resting in the perfect love that Jesus shows you. Now, the remaining verses in verses 23 through 25 speak to the way that God causes us to be able to grow in love. So Peter says love. Now Peter is saying this is how it can happen in your life. Let's read these verses. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So what is Peter saying? Peter is saying you're able to love. You have a capacity to love because you have been born again. You're born again. You're born again, though, not with a perishable seed. You are born again through an imperishable seed. Now, the seed shares the character of its source. Peter's point is to help his audience to remember that if we try to build unity in the church on the basis of our first birth, it's not going to work. We're going to be selfish. It's, all, it's going to be all about us. But if we build unity in the church based on our second birth, our new birth, then we're getting somewhere. Then we are able to be unified. The new birth, being born again, initiates our spiritual life. If you want to, on your own, read John chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. It's the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And And Nicodemus is just having a troubling time figuring out what it means to be born again. And Jesus so clearly communicates that to be born again is not something that can happen physically, but it is something that happens spiritually when a person places their trust in Jesus. And when you place your trust in Jesus and he makes you brand new, you are able to do the things that he wants you to do. The seed that has started new life in us is indestructible. It's imperishable. It will not lose its effectiveness. The seed that causes new life in us is through the living and adoring word of God. That is the indestructible seed. That is what causes the change. A few thoughts. A few thoughts about this imperishable seed. First, it's living. We know this, right? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions from the heart. The word of God is living and active. It endures. It's alive. 
It's not a book that you just put on a shelf. It is the very word of God spoken to us that brings life and godliness. Don't ever take this book that you have for granted. It is the living, breathed out word of God. It is the only book in all of creation that will give you life. Run to it. Rest in it. Long for it. And feed off of it. Let God's word be your delight. Listen, the more you read the Bible, the more your capacity to love will grow. It has to. Because when you're in the scriptures and you're reading what God says about what it means to be his follower, the only thing that you can do is say, oh man, I need to grow. I need to be more like Jesus. And thank you, God, for giving me such a great example in your son to follow. In the remaining verses, Peter quotes from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, to show that the word of God certainly does endure. It's living and it endures. It does not fade away. The word of God is just as approachable and applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. Culture doesn't think so. But we know so. It's convicting. It's healing. The Word of God will last forever, even when everything else and everyone else Right? Because that's what Isaiah is saying. Look at verse 24. All flesh is like grass. That's us. Right? Even when people fade away, the word of God will last forever. Now, I want you to think about that thought for a second, that we're going to fade away. You realize this, right? Within two generations of your passing, the people that come after you may remember your name, but they're certainly not going to know many facts about your life. Now, I'm not trying to burst your bubble, but I need you to understand that you're just a blip in the continuum of time. What you do will not last, but who you believe in and what God has said about him, that lasts forever. His word endures If you want to preserve a legacy in your life, the only thing you can do is read the Word of God and apply it. God's Word will never fade away. Peter says, this was the Word preached to you. Now, Peter's audience was saved by the revelation of the Word of God. They weren't saved by dog and pony shows, right? The circus didn't come to town and they're like, oh, that, that's it. That's what I need. It wasn't with fog lights and loud music and all of those kind of gimmicks and gadgets that we use to be attractional. It wasn't P 
Peter's personality. It wasn't Paul's personality. It wasn't like that these guys had it all together. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to I'm going to say a name. Uh, I don't know if you listen to him or not, but Tony Robbins, you know, that motivational speaker guy that's like, I'll pump you up like he's super excited and everywhere like he has a personality that draws people. To, no, it, you didn't come to faith because someone else was so good at saying what they said. You're like, oh, right. That, OK, I get it now. No, you were saved because the word of God revealed to you who you are, your greatest need and what has been provided We are enlightened to the gospel. We are enlightened to sin, not because a person was slick in in the way that he presented it. We're enlightened to those things because God's word has revealed it. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's the word of God. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we take the Bible very seriously here. Some of you are thinking... A little too serious right now. I don't have anything else to give you. I don't. All I can give you is the hope that is found in this word. When we rest in this word, not only do our lives change personally, but our love for each other and our love for our community grows exponentially. Listen. We are committed to the sufficiency of the enduring word of God here at this church. We are going to be committed to the word of God. We're going to take time to mine through the glories of it. It saddens me to hear how many churches have diminished the place that the word of God once had in their ministries for the sake of attractional stunts to fill their seats. Just this week, here are a few examples of things that I read that churches have done to fill their seats. There was a pastor in Ohio that transformed his sanctuary into a rodeo ring. And he rode a bull during the church service. He only lasted three seconds. And then he got up and he preached his sermon. There was a church in Kentucky that had a Second Amendment celebration. They gave away guns as door prizes to get people to come to church. Some churches are incorporating mixed martial arts into their men's ministries and ladies' ministries. They're holding fight clubs and they have viewing parties for MMA events to attract people to their church. There was a pastor in Texas that brought a real-life lion and a real-life lamb onto stage for his Easter sermon so that he could talk about how Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and is the lamb of God. And finally, my best of the worst is this. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, So that guy that they're cheering for is the pastor. He blew himself up in a car to get people to come to church. What are we doing? 
I get it. There might be times you're here thinking, another sermon. This seems so boring. The great thing about it is when you have that issue, the issue isn't with me. It's the word of God that endures, that gives life, that guides our steps. Church, there's something beautifully simple about the book that you have in front of you. Charles Spurgeon said this about the Bible. Nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. Love well. Love extravagantly. Love like Jesus. Grow in your love for each other. And the best way that you can learn how to love is to read the word of God. It will change you and it will change those around you. Let's pray.